Hi, I'm Carrie Budoff Brown, the editor of Politico, and welcome to Women Rule, the podcast. Welcome to our first show. Today's guests are Valerie Jared and Senator Deb Fisher. Valerie Jared, as many people know, she was one of the highest ranking women in the Obama White House, one of his longest serving senior advisors, and of course, a close personal friend of the former first family. So close, in fact, that she was one of a handful of people who accompanied the Obamas on their last flight out of Andrews Air Force Base right after Trump's inauguration. Stay tuned to hear what she had to say about that. Our second guest is Senator Deb Fisher, a Republican from Nebraska. She's a cattle rancher turned member of Congress who rose through state and local politics to become the first elected female senator from that state. She took the unusual step last fall and denounced Trump and even pulled her support for him following the revelation of the Access Hollywood tapes. But now she's working alongside Ivanka Trump to push paid family leave through Congress. Stay tuned to hear what she has to say about that. Every month, I'll be bringing you conversations and taking you backstage with women leaders, bosses in politics and policy from across the political spectrum. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on iTunes, rate us and leave a review, share the episodes on social media, and follow me on Twitter at C. Brown. Women Rule is produced by Politico in partnership with Google and the Tory Burch Foundation. And now let's get to our interviews, first with Valerie Jarrett and then with Senator Fisher. Valerie Jarrett is was probably what, the, the longest serving senior advisor to the former President Obama? I was, yes, yes. indeed. Uh, officially uh, senior advisor to President Obama, uh, you oversaw the she oversaw the offices of public engagement and governmental affairs, and chaired the women the White House Council on Women and Girls. Yes, Valerie, as some in the audience may know, started with President Obama on day one, uh, pre day one, day one, I guess, right? Twenty six years ago. Twenty six years <laughs> is ago, when I first met both the president and first lady. So a long time ago, um, and you literally shut off the lights. Um, you saw that, my tweet. I did. Uh, I think we always covering the president. I covered the president uh, um, for a number of years. And it was always like, who's going to shut off the lights? And it was sort of a parlor game of sorts. It was and, a parlor game. And so I thought I would actually tweet out a photograph. of yes, it. So and, one of my last tweets from the White House. Yeah. You know, I'm like sort of fascinated by that last day in a way. Um, I had this really lovely dinner with Tina Chen a couple nights before that. The first lady's chief of staff. And she didn't say much. She didn't disclose much. But what she did tell me was sort of that, you know, you were going to leave the White House and go to Andrews and then fly off, which is just a sort of, you know, to wrap my head around sort of what that flight was like taking off from Andrews the first time as a post, you know, post-presidency. Um, can you take me inside that that moment, that day? Um, sure, sure. You know, I, I would just love to know, like, when those doors closed on that plane, what happened? Well, I think we all kind of breathed a sigh of relief. I think it was important to Tina and me to be there on the last day mm-hmm. in the White House. We wanted to have a chance to say goodbye to all of the people who work in the White House who have been so supportive of the first family and of us over the last eight years and to take that last walk around. I think it was um, a little more bittersweet than I expected. Mm-hmm. I went to turn in my iPhone uh, just as they were moving President Obama's furniture from the Oval Office and replacing it with President Trump's. And I wasn't expecting to see that so suddenly, whereas, of course, I should have expected it because that's what a smooth transition is all about. And then we went out to Andrews, and it was just great to see everybody who uh, had been a part of the administration who had the opportunity to come to say that final goodbye. And then walking onto the plane, I can remember turning back and looking at the crowd and realizing that it was an end of a chapter. But when we got on the plane, I thought, well, this is the beginning of a new chapter. And we spent a lot of time talking about the future and not so much the past. And so it was a a terrific way to say goodbye, but then also say hello to the next chapter. And so it was celebratory. And it was, it was good to have, um, you know, close friends who'd been a part of this since the early, early days there with the Obama family. And it was a, it was a great flight. 
How went by des- quickly. <laughs> how would you describe the mood? I think the mood was, uh, it was good. Mm-hmm. It was, I think there was a sense of pride in everything we had mm-hmm. finished, but also optimism about the future. And, and, and even though, I mean, obviously the election didn't turn out the way we would have wanted it to turn out, but I think both the president and first lady recognize that they have great platforms and to be um, focusing on what they can do to be a force for good going forward. So it was really much more of an upbeat conversation about the future than it was about the past. What was the optimism? Where did that spring from? Well, I think it springs from both of them who are optimistic by nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we did any reflecting, it was about extraordinary people that we've met along the way who've worked hard to make our country um, so vibrant and so strong and recognizing that those folks um, want to still continue to engage with both President Obama and the First Lady and thinking about ways in which we can make that happen um, really occupied the conversation. And it was just, it was, we tried to keep the mood light. I think Tina and I were mindful of the fact that this was a pretty, you know, um, emotional day for everyone as you close a chapter down. But then there's so much to look forward to. And I think that's really where our focus was. Was there any like toasts of any kind? Uh, You know, I don't remember um, really toasting. I think we just... First of all, I think everybody was exhausted, too. Yeah, <laughs> it, had yeah. been, it, it was an emotional point. moment. And when you finally, as you said, close the door to the plane, I think it all kind of comes down. And so um, I wouldn't say celebratory, but it was a yeah. good mood. It yeah. was a very good and positive mood. Good, good. Well, I, you know, and, I, and, and the last time, Valerie, we saw each other was in December, early December at our Women Rule Summit. And I was interviewing on stage and pressing you a little bit about what does life look like post-White House for yeah. you and the sort of my... I was sort of excited in some way for you, I think, after you complete like a really huge task, whether it's like a thesis or something you're looking or complete a good story. You're sort of you like look forward to that moment when you can just breathe. And I think you were like really fantasizing almost about that that day. So like and you were not giving up many details about what that would look like. So what did you do? When that plane landed, what have you been doing for the last month? Like, where did you go? Tell us where you vacationed, if you don't mind. Well, I do mind. So I'll tell you a little (laughs) bit, though. So Tina and I uh, had dinner with the first family, and then we uh, drove to Los Angeles, and then we took off for an undisclosed location where we hung out for a week with uh, some of my relatives Mm -hmm. and just really unwound and relaxed and It was warm. I'll give you that much. Mm -hmm. And then I went home for a little bit. And then I went on another undisclosed vacation Mm -hmm. for a few more days. And then since um, I returned to Washington, I've really been quite busy, busier Mm -hmm. than I would have expected. I've been to California twice. I've been to New York a couple of times. I've been back to Chicago. And I'm just really enjoying myself and doing exactly what I want to do. I'm helping the president out a little bit with his Obama Center. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be an incredible anchor on the south side of Chicago and not just a beacon of hope for the city, but really the world. Mm-hmm. And very excited about the possibilities of that. I've been doing some speaking. John Heilman and I did an armchair conversation mm-hmm. in San Francisco a couple of weeks ago, which was a hoot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what I'm going to do for a while. How long did you, I think you vowed to me also that you would not look at your phone. And I questioned whether that was possible. Was that possible? It was a lot easier than I thought. Really? Um, on vacation, I kind of did a news blackout and um, exercised and laughed with my family and Tina. And uh, we found ways of busying ourselves that did not involve, no offense, reading political first thing in the morning. And so I did a very gradual um re-immersion back in into what's happening in the world when we return from vacation. Good. So when what about so I, I know this might be unfair because you are you are only a month in. Um, but I I look back to see what you were how you were answering this question before you left. Yeah. The White House. What did what, I say? Well, you said you were going to rest and you were going to think about it. I did. I and did. a lot of folks did ask you the question of does Valerie Jarrett does she run for office? And I looked up to see what the opportunities would be in Illinois. Ah. And so uh, from what I can tell, governor's up in uh, open in 2018, Chicago mayor in 2019, and senator in 2020. What are your thoughts now? Um, I don't have any more insight for you than I had then. I honestly have not given any thought to running mm-hmm. for office. I do want to be, uh, the phrase I like to use is a force for good and figure out how I can make a contribution outside of government 
And I think one of um, one of the many, many lessons I've learned over my career is how much opportunity there is for government to be a catalyst for good, but that once that catalyst gets going, that there's so mm-hmm. much that happens outside of government mm-hmm. that's very positive. And a lot of the work that we did while we were in the White House around a range of issues. I mean, for example, I'm sure Tina talked to you about our whole working families agenda mm-hmm. and advocating for paid leave and equal pay and raising the minimum wage and workplace flexibility, affordable child care, all of the issues that working families today struggle with. Uh, that work can continue outside of the White House Council mm-hmm. on Women and Girls because across the country, employers, Carrie, are beginning to recognize that investing in their workers improves the chance of not just attracting the best, but retaining them. And that gives you a competitive advantage. And so I am going around talking to employers about the importance mm-hmm. of those working family priorities in the hopes that it helps improve their business, strengthens our working families, and ultimately it's good for the country. And so what are those issues that I care passionately about, such as that or criminal justice reform? We did a lot of very important work trying to get Congress to pass legislation to reduce mandatory minimums for nonviolent drug offenders. And although we were unsuccessful, even though there was huge bipartisan support, what heartens me is the work that's going around the country at the state and local level. And so I want to spend some time really doing that as well. So I'm saying my point here is, is mm-hmm. that there's a lot you can do to be a force for good without actually running for office. So how are you? Um, well, actually, I'm not gonna let you quite off the hook on the running for office thing. I think I'm gonna, in part because I'm sort of Curious to know, I think at this point in time, you, you've seen a lot of the sort of the grassroots activity, the women marching, women asking sort of what should they do now? Um, and one of and I'm wondering what if women are asking you what they think they should do. Like, what are you telling women now? And I'll just put that out there. Yeah. Um, I mean, did you watch, were you in a a location on that day where you could uh, watch those marches? What was your... I saw a little bit of what um, was sent to me by friends in the media, which was just amazing. I think it turned out to be much more robust than anyone could have imagined. And from the people I talked to who were on the ground, the spirit and the energy Mm -hmm. out there was just tremendous. And, you know, it was a friendly crowd and people were meeting strangers and talking to one another. And that's what... Civic engagement is really mm-hmm. all about it. It's people coming together from all walks of life, from all over the country, around a common purpose. And part of what I say to people is, look, the demonstrations are important. It helps to build energy and momentum. But we also have to figure out what we're for. It mm-hmm. can't just be what we're against. And so I encourage people to figure out, you know, what is it? what is your cause that you care tremendously about? And while you're holding your comf- government accountable, which you should do, What are you doing to further that cause in a positive way? There are many contributions that we can all make in our local community, at the state level, even at the federal level here in Washington, if you want to lobby on behalf of a cause. And I also encourage women, particularly young women, to think about getting in the arena themselves and running for office. And I think that... And what do you tell them when they say, oh, I don't know if I want to do that? I say you have to have the fire in your belly, Mm -hmm. but that our, our government will only be as good as the citizens uh, force it to be. And that part of how you ensure a great um, and vibrant and competitive country is to get involved. And you can't just complain from the sidelines. You've got to get in there and roll up your sleeves and participate. Now, look, running for office isn't for everybody. And I've seen it up close and personal, both at the local level, through the mayor of Chicago, and obviously now the president of the United States. And you have to be able to take a lot of incoming. You have to have a tough skin. But I just think we need to have more talented and more diversity in the folks who are running for office. And women can play a big role in that. I always say, Carrie, that if we had, you know, a majority of women in the House of Representatives or in the Senate, I think it would be more collegial and more productive. And you might say that's a stereotype, but I have seen organizations Mm -hmm. where women have a critical mass. Our White House had a critical mass of women. And I think it's a healthier, constructive environment. And I also think that considering that we make up half of the population of the United States, we comprise half of the workforce now, our voices are vital to the long-term success of our country. And, you know, what's interesting about that is, that, you know, last year we obviously had the first female, you know, presidential nominee, but the representation in the House and Senate sort of with women remained stuck at 20 percent. Um, 
what's your what's your take on why that is? Well, we need a strong bench, and so uh-huh. part of what I encourage um, women to do is run for your local school board, get involved mm-hmm. in the park district, and I just think it's important that women not shy away from it. And you you might not necessarily just jump right in and run for Senate, which is why some of those other offices kind of help you build the foundation to move towards running for a federal office. I am a big advocate for starting local. And the reason why I say that is, is that uh, you can't hide from your constituents at the local level. They have your phone number. They knock on your door. Um, their issues are usually not partisan issues. They're like, you know, can I have an affordable place to live? Are my streets safe? Are the schools quality schools? Are there open spaces for my kids to play? Is my garbage picked up? Is the snow removed in cities like Chicago? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you need to remain in touch with that pulse because if you get removed from it, then it's harder to represent mm-hmm. those interests. So to bring the conversation back to you, um, <laughs> you know, as you, as, you know, just I, I totally with with running for office, like I, I totally got your your reasoning for doing it, not doing it eight years ago. You had a great opportunity to go into the White House, and and you were going to take that. You didn't want to pass that up. Just hearing you talk now, I mean, what would what like if you can give us a, a window into your thinking, like what is the pro con argument for why you would or wouldn't run for office right now? I spent eight years of my life in local government in Chicago, tremendous experience full-time. I spent another eight years as chair of the Chicago Transit Board part-time, and I spent eight years in government now, and I think, and I just turned 60. And I think it's time for us to build a new bench. I think it's good for some fresh legs to come along, and I think that I am really interested in helping nurture younger people who are interested in running for office. And um, I don't know how long that rest is that I told you I needed back when we last chatted, but I think I owe myself a little break and to just kind of enjoy life and take stock and figure out uh, how best I can make a difference. And if you were to ask me right now, I think I can best make a difference from outside of government because I've learned so much in government and I recognize that there's so much that might be easier to do um, outside of government. So you're ruling it out? I, I never I, – I'll tell you, I may have told you this before, but when I was um, – when I worked for the city of Chicago, one of my best jobs was commissioner planning and development, and I spent a lot of time working with the federal government, much to my great frustration because I always felt that uh, representing people on the ground, I heard their hopes and dreams, and I felt that the federal government would try to get us to tailor – their hopes and dreams into some programs that were disconnected, as opposed to making the programs bend to meet the needs, the unique needs of every community. And when I worked in the Department of Planning and Development, I said, the one thing I know I will never, ever do is work for the federal government. So I learned back then not to say what I will or I will not do. And I think having come out of this extraordinary experience, and I know I shared with you that it was just the most tremendous opportunity and privilege of a lifetime, which I'm still humbled to um, to have had. But I don't think I have to make any decisions before I have to make a decision. So why would I rule anything out now when I'm so fresh from this um, pretty profound life experience? Yeah. You know, as I was looking at your profile or just sort of, sort of researching you, I saw that you you know signed up to be a speaker at yes. the CAA. Yes. Um, and your topics were interesting to me in part because – uh, you know, as we were brainstorming the idea for this podcast, um, it was a group of four women and one man in a room. And it was Susan. Glass- I like it already. I know. It's, uh, my, my predecessor, Susan Glasser, and some other folks. And we were trying to think about what we would do on Women Rule this year. And and the one idea that came up that resonated was that we would talk about the fear of failure. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, And that was the original idea for this podcast. I actually wanted to call it The Fear of Failure because it actually resonated so much. And these women who were so – I was in this room. I didn't know them that well just as I came back to take over as editor. And, like, it resonated so much. I was like, oh, wow. You know, like these high-powered, very accomplished women have this fear of failure, right? And I just thought that was a really – Everybody does. Men and women, right? And I just thought, well, that's a really sort of universal idea. And, like, how do we – and I always – love hearing from other women about how they push past this. And so just to get back to my point is that what I noticed in one of the, th- the, the sort of concepts that you would pitch as, you know, in terms of the speeches you may give yeah. it involved the idea of the fear of failure. Yeah. I, and so I, Valerie Jarrett, talk to me about the fear of failure. Um, 
you know, what you've experienced. Like just when, you, when I said fear of failure, you sort of said, oh, yeah. Like, what is well, that? Well, so first of all, everybody does mm-hmm. fear failure. And I think the difference is what coping, coping mechanisms we develop, mm-hmm. what kind of resilience we have in our mm-hmm. life that allows us to take risks. Because you know, failure can, the fear of failure is overcome with courage. Mm-hmm. And where do you get courage? So, for example, I think men often get that courage from sports. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the reasons I like to see young girls be in competitive sports because you learn to try, you learn how to lose, you learn that just because you lose one game doesn't mean you won't win another game. And I think that's one way of coping with that fear of failure. I think another one is trying something and being unsuccessful at it and seeing that life doesn't end just because you're unsuccessful um, and that you have to be flexible and Figure out, can you get better at something? So I'll give you a good example. I used to be extremely shy. Yeah. You find that hard to believe, I know. I No, I actually do. But Most I guess people I, say that to me now, right. 20 yeah, years yeah, later. Yeah, so what, when were, how, what was the stage when you were painfully shy? My entire childhood, really? well into my adulthood. And I, I mean, I used to remember my mother would say to me when she'd take me out to a social event, you can't just talk to me. You have to talk to the person on the yeah. other side of you. And I would say, well, why? And I, I just was shy. And I would, I don't know where that comes from. But I had to learn to overcome that pro- professionally. And when I overcame it professionally, it just helped me generally. And it happened when I became the Commissioner of Planning and Development. And part of my job responsibilities that I didn't fully appreciate when I took the job was public speaking. Mm-hmm. And I went all the way through law school just terrified when a professor would call on me. And so I didn't get better at it then. And a lot of people do. That experience tends to make you um, be more resilient. But I started having to give speeches. And I remember the first speech I gave was to the Friends of Chicago River. And I had my notes on a note card. And I was so nervous. I was sweaty. And the ink on the paper all mushed together. And my notes were gone. And I had to just do it. But I actually knew what I wanted to talk about. And so I did it. And I remember feeling like, oh, I got through it. Mm-hmm. And then you give another speech. And then you give another speech. And then suddenly, you're not dreading it anymore. You're actually looking forward to it. And so part of my message, particularly to young folks is if you think you're not good at something, work at getting better at it. And don't worry about that fear of failure. Now, I hasten to add, I mean, I took another big risk when I left a law firm where I didn't feel I was doing terribly well. And I was miserable. I didn't feel as though I was doing something worthy of my daughter one day being proud of me, which Mm. was something I was very focused on when, when, well, to this day, I still want to make her proud. Um, I think as we all do, of not just our parents, but our children, And I took a big risk in going to work for the city of Chicago as a lawyer. And a lot of people said, you know, why would you leave a law firm? It's prestigious and got this beautiful office and a view of Lake Michigan. And I walked into my cubicle in City Hall and I felt, Carrie, that I was where I belonged. And uh, and it was a risk and it, it might not have worked out. But it did. And it changed my life. Or another thing that I encourage people to do, and particularly women, is you have to be an advocate for yourself. And I remember the first time I asked for a promotion. And it would never have occurred to me to ask for a promotion. But I had a a mentor who was also my client. And she wasn't just a mentor. She was an advocate. Because a mentor can give you advice and kind of sit on the silence. But she got in there and she pushed for me as well. Made sure I got great work to do within the law department asked for me to be assigned to her matters. But she said, you know, you're doing work at a level that's far senior to where you are. Because I came in at kind of an entry-level lawyer. She says, you should go ask for promotion. And I thought, well, my boss should recognize my Mm -hmm. value and and reward me accordingly. And it seemed unseemly to go in there. And she just kept pushing and pushing. And she said, the worst thing that'll happen is he'll say no. Mm -hmm. Why are you afraid of that? And I had to do some real soul-searching And I ultimately went in there and I made my case for why I should get a promotion. And my boss looked at me over his glasses and he said, okay. Yeah. Now, that doesn't always happen, but it's a good lesson that we should not fear failure. And rejection, too. Is it the same thing? Yep. Failure, rejection, sense that, you know, you have to change courses. I mean, I know when I. I've changed courses a few times in my life, and there are always people that say stay on the straight line. And I always find that the, you know, the shortest distance is often the circuitous route to where you mm-hmm. want to go. And all of that takes a level of risk taking, 
And you have to be resilient. You have to accept the fact that you might try some things that don't work out and you have to brush yourself off and you've got to get back in the game. And if you aren't willing to do that and you don't de- develop that resilience, then life is going to be really hard because in both your professional and personal life, you're going to have setbacks. And so coping, learning early in life how to cope with those setbacks, to learn from them and find out you can survive rejection, failure, whatever you want to call it, and and make maybe find a better path. That's what makes life so interesting. Yeah. So so what, you know when I, I when I read a, you know I did read that you were painfully shy, and I think it's sort of remarkable that you go from you know where you were, you know in your twenties to then you know. Years later, being, you know, one of the most written about people, scrutinized people, right? Yes. Let's be yes. honest. No, like, no, absolutely. Seriously scrutinized people and um, as a, you know, very obviously senior advisor in the White House, but close family friend of, of the Obamas. So that brought a lot of attention to you. It certainly did. Yeah. And and as I was, as I was researching, I, I, you know, I sort of reminded me that in 2014, there were a couple of tough stories written about you, including from Politico by the magazine. Yeah, so you in, did in, have in, a in really full, tough story there. In full disclosure. And it did make me think, you know, I, I, when I would write stories, I would feel very exposed, you know, myself. Mm-hmm. So I can only imagine what it's like to have these magazine-length stories written about you. And I, I wanted to know, like, how did you, uh, you know, first of all, like, how did you cope with that? Like, how do you cope with that sort of exposure in a way? Um, well, and like, yeah. as you you do remember the 2014 stories, like, what were you feeling at that point? And like, how did you cope with the fact that a lot of stuff's written about you that you probably really thoroughly disliked? You know what my attitude is? Um, there's no better revenge than success. And just keep your head down and keep working hard. I am fortunate to have been raised by two parents who loved me unconditionally and gave me an enormous amount of support and set high expectations for me, not in terms of what I would, um, you know, what my job would be, but what I would be as a human being and character and integrity and a moral compass pointed towards true north. Those were all values that were instilled in me very, very early. And I think it gave me a level of, you know, just stay true to who you are and, outwork everybody and um, demonstrate that whatever unkind words people um, who don't know you um, say about you in the end are not going to be what measures your your value and your worth. And I think that having the privilege of being a part of the Obama administration and having the president place in me confidence to do a job meant that I had to be willing to take, you know, a lot of grief that just kind of goes along with the incredible privilege and so if you were to say to me you know a snarky article in politico by a woman who's never met me versus the privilege of serving our country for 8 years for a president who i respect so deeply you just have to kind of let it um roll off and that's not to say that i don't listen to criticism because i learn a lot sometimes by it uh but when people who don't know you reach judgments about you that aren't based in fact, you have to have enough of a center core to take a, take a belly blow from time to time. And know in the end, when I look back of where we ended after eight years, I'm so proud of the president's record, and I'm proud of the contribution that I made to it. And in the end, that's what's most important. So that's good perspective. Is, is there a moment, though, where you're sitting there and you're just thinking, gosh, I just don't even know if I want to show up for work today because I can't no. deal with this? No, never. Never. Not one single moment. Really? No, not one single moment. And that's not to say that sometimes, you know, you read things and you'll go, well, ouch, that hurt. And that wasn't very kind or wasn't wasn't correct or it wasn't. I mean, you name all the different ways mm-hmm. that we all humanly take criticism, but never to the point where – I wanted to shy away from this opportunity because part of it's just an opportunity, just like that human feeling of like, I just I can't I can't deal with this anymore. No, no never. Not even <laughs> That's close. Impressive. That's, I mean, I, but I want to be really honest <laughs> yeah. with you. It's not that it's not like cringe yeah. words that yeah. you read it and you go, oh, my goodness. And, you know, I call my family and give them a heads up. If you see this piece, you're not going to like it. And it's like, well, they don't know you. And so what difference does it really make? And so I think, again, having worked uh, in local government in the city of Chicago, I was under kind of a, a smaller bowl, uh, what do you call it, a smaller pond of scrutiny. Mm-hmm. But it, but I, I had to learn to keep 
the long view and focus on what we were trying to accomplish and that all of that other stuff is noise and it's intended to distract you. And if you allow yourself to succumb to that kind of emotional vulnerability, then you're not going to do what you're there to do. And I'm not saying it isn't hard some days, and I'm not saying it doesn't require some strength and some grit and you know, to go in a room and like put on a positive face because um, people look to you to see, well, did that article mm-hmm. ruffle you? And so sometimes you have to like put on your game face. But I also say like nobody remembers what somebody, unless mm-hmm. you've done your research, you probably <laughs> wouldn't even remember the Politico did, yes, did no. that piece. And I think that's part of maturity is, is that you, I mean, I'll tell you a very quick story, which says it all years, years ago, um, someone did a story on the women who had been in the daily administration, mm-hmm. his cabinet and senior staff. And it was uh, intended to be critical of him. Because uh, it was, I think, seven women who had left and it told a little blurb about each of us. And all of the blurbs were unkind about each of us um, and then ultimately about him. And I was mortified. So this is like 20 years ago, yeah. mortified. And a friend of mine called me the next day and I thought she was calling to say, oh, I'm so sympathetic that the front page of the Sun-Times had this story about you. And I said, hey, Kelly. And she said, hey. And she said, um, I saw that story about you and I kind of braced for that emotion you're talking about. You know, she said, great photograph. <laughs> Exactly. So my one of my look. best friends didn't <laughs> read the story. Yeah, and so the yeah. point is, it's like yeah. people are wrapping fish with it the next day. Mm. You just, you can take the issue seriously. Mm-hmm. You cannot take yourself that seriously. You just yes. can't. Well, someone who may want to hear this is Kellyanne Conway, who you're, I, I wanted to bring up because I believe that uh, the last time we spoke, um, she was contemplating going into the White House and um, you two ran into each other backstage and you encouraged her. And lo and behold, a couple days later, a week or two later, she ended up going into the White House. And um, you're very discreet. I get that. Um, but it, it was it, it, it stuck with me. I, I think, um, you know, she came in to see you a, a couple weeks after that for lunch at the White House. What advice did you give to her about that pressure cooker? in the West Wing, and I'll try once more and giving me a little bit more context about what you told her. Well, you know, I really want to respect the fact Mm -hmm. that uh, part of what uh, President Obama insisted upon is the same thing that President Bush did for us, and that is to give our best counsel to our the people who follow um, followed in the next administration, benefit of our eight years of experience, and the, to do it in a way where it's a safe conversation, which means to keep it confidential. But I think what she has shared publicly, and I've said to not just to Kellyanne, but to all women who are thinking about getting into this arena, is that you you will you you got to try you got to get in there and it's not for everybody but you don't want to ever regret having had the opportunity to work in an administration for somebody who you respect just as I respected president mm-hmm. obama uh and think oh what if yeah what if i had gotten in there what if i could have made things better mm-hmm. and i think part of life is trying to have at the end of it as few regrets as possible and so you know, my advice is if you if you um, have an opportunity to serve and the person who's asking you is somebody who you respect and trust, it's really hard to say no. And and particularly when it's the president of the United States. And that's part of why I made the decision not to put my name in the hat for the U.S. Senate, because President Obama asked me to come and join his administration. And I think if I had well, I would have regretted it for a lot of reasons if I had had my hat in that ring. But let's assume <laughs> I had made it to the Senate. I would have really regretted not having been a part of the Obama administration. Do you still hear from her? I haven't heard from her since I've been back from vacation. Obviously, she's really busy. And I certainly remember, my goodness, those early days of the Obama administration. I think my family basically didn't hear from me for <laughs> about a month. So it's, it's hard in the beginning. Oh, I shouldn't it's, say that. It's hard all the way through. It is hard all the way through, but it it is new in the beginning, and therefore the challenges um, are um, are more difficult. And and in time, you get used to the White House. You get used to the team with whom you're working. You learn to trust one another and support one another. And I I think about over the arc of President Obama's administration that. 
what I will miss most are those people and the strength of those relationships. And even though we all still talk to each other and see each other, it's not the same as working in the White House together. So it gets better in time. How are you guys communicating now? Do you text each other? Do you have we, messaging we, apps that we you use? Have or like, a, what is it? What's are the you method? asking about all of us on the team or anyone in particular? You and the president. That's what I thought you meant. Well, so we have a way of communicating with one another. He has a little bit more freedom now, but we always emailed. Uh, And so, yeah, he's he's he has the freedom to email as he chooses. Has he driven a car yet? I don't know whether he's driven (laughs) a car yet. Probably not. I did. I drove a car. It was fun. Yeah, it was was great. The little things, little things in life, the liberties of. um, of uh, being away from the White House, yeah. I wanted to ask you about about the women and their imprint on public policy. Um, you were on the inside. Um, I have read a couple of stories in the last week or two, or probably actually longer than that. But there was a good story in USA Today this week about the how men in the West Wing or in the White House right now outnumber women by two to one. Um. And that the, I think the White House pushed back and said it's actually 31 percent versus, I don't know, something like 20 percent, which a 20 percent will put it pretty low compared to President Trump's predecessors. And then you also have the cabinet that has only four of the 23 cabinet level positions so far. And that puts it again, you know, far behind his predecessors. So what what is being lost here when you have that type of. Well, I think what by most standards people would say an imbalance. Well, I don't want to comment on the Trump administration per se. What I will say to you more broadly is this, and that is that I think that diversity is a strength. I think that when you represent a diverse organization, whether it's whether you're uh, in government or whether you're in a private business, that in an increasingly um, diverse marketplace, um, increasingly diverse citizenship, that it's important that you have ideas that come from all quarters. And the reason why, and having had a chance to observe how President Obama makes decisions, is that he wanted to be fully informed before he made a decision. And that meant listening to people who had different life experiences. Gender is a different life experience. Geography, faith, uh, religion, uh, race, all of these perspectives Um, including gender, are important to get a well-rounded set of of, um, thoughts that inform your ultimate decision-making. So I just simply believe that diversity is a strength. And I think that, as I said earlier, given that our country is comprised of half-women, wouldn't you want to make sure that in your organization those voices are heard? I would also um, hasten to add, and I think this is very true for President Obama, he was raised by a single mom. He lived with um, a grandmother and grandfather, but he watched his grandmother, who had a high school education and was smart as a whip and helped train people in her bank. And she saw men leapfrogging over her. Uh, here he's married to this extraordinarily dynamic first lady. But he remembers what it was like when the girls were young and he was in Springfield and the first lady had a demanding job. And if the babysitter fell through, the burden fell dis disproportionately on her. And then he's got these two incredible young girls. And so I say that to say, I think men who are surrounded by women also bring a different perspective than men who have only lived in an all-male environment. And so um, and so I think there is a richness in that dialogue and, those, and being informed by those perspectives. Um, and uh, President Obama's life was informed by the women around him. And that helped him come into the White House with a certain perspective. I was a single mom. And I had, um, as I mentioned, two parents who loved me and supported me and helped me raise my daughter. And I had the wherewithal to afford um, great child care. And I had flexible bosses. And I still felt like I was hanging on my, my fingertips. And so when I sit down with a minimum wage worker who has two jobs and two children and is single and is trying to figure out how to afford child care, I have a sense as to how, you know, how challenging that is because I had such an easier life but still felt enormously challenged. So the ability to have empathy and to put yourself in somebody's shoes 
is easier when the people around you are constantly informing you of those perspectives. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. Um, I think I, I'd be remiss not to ask you, what has it been like to watch uh, a new administration, a new White House, so sort of in terms of policy goals, different than the ones you led? What, what you know, you watch it every day. Well, I, I try I try not to get too consumed with the daily sausage making. I mean, I, I think what I worry about uh, Carrie, are the people whose lives could be affected by the shift in policies. And so, you know, uh, whether it's the young immigrant who is coming to this country and trying to make a life for themselves and was brought here by their parents and is just trying to, you know, feels just, just as much of a citizen as you or I, or whether it's um, a mom whose child's life was saved because of the ACA and is worried about losing health insurance. It's really, I mean, those are the people who I worry about. It's not so much about us having, um, you know, ownership of a particular policy. The whole intent was to be helpful to the American people and to make sure that they have the support that they need to thrive. And so anything that um, uh, jeopardizes that is what gives me cause for concern. Are you, what, what about the president? Former president, president, I should say the former president. Is he keeping up on the news? Does he you does he what? shoot off texts to you uh, <laughs> when he sees something that drives him crazy? You know what? I think, um, does he keep up on the news? Of course he does. I think he's a very informed. He's, he's intellectually curious. Mm-hmm. He cares a great deal about our country. And I think a lot of his time and attention right now is going towards his Obama Center He's a young man. He and the First Lady are both uh, very young. They have the opportunity to have a great impact on our country and the world. And he's spending a lot of his energy on positive energy on thinking about how does he want to spend the rest of his life? What are the issues that he cares passionately about? And it can be, you know, building up the foundation, creating a platform for civic engagement, focusing on issues like My Brother's Keeper that he launched while he was in the White House. It's designed to help boys and young men of color get that fair shot. Um, The First Lady has issues, obviously, that she cares about a great deal as well. And so I think most of their energy is really going towards figuring out how do they continue to take their their gifts, these are my words, not theirs, uh, and use them to make the world a better place. And and that's a full-time job. Indeed. All right. Well, Valerie, thank you so much. You are welcome. It was it's a, a pleasure. pleasure. I'm just delighted to have been a part of your <laughs> yes. first podcast. Maybe I'll come back with a little yes. more perspective after I've had a little more sleep. When you want to announce you're running for exactly, office. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. Not. <laughs> or not. Yes. Or not. Yeah. Thank you, Valerie. <laughs> you're welcome. Let's take a quick break for a programming note. Politico is teaming up with podcasters all over the country to raise podcast awareness for an initiative called Hashtag Tripod. If you're listening right now, you are one of the one in five Americans who listens to podcasts. So we need your help. All this month, we want you to find one of those Americans who doesn't listen to podcasts, a friend, a relative, a friendly face in the crowd. Find that person and explain to them what a podcast is, where to find one, and how to listen. When you complete that mission, tell us what you recommended with hashtag tripod. That's T-R-Y-P-O-D. Now to our interview with Senator Deb Fisher. Welcome, um, Senator Deb Fisher from the uh, great state of Nebraska, um, first-term senator nearing uh, the end of your first six-year term. Are you running again for re-election? I haven't formally announced. Do you want to make news here? <laughs> not today. <laughs> not, to, not to a reporter from Washington, maybe to the home state, Nebraska right. reporters. Um, and happy birthday to you. Uh, Thank you. How did you celebrate it? Oh, well, yesterday was my birthday, and I got to celebrate it by celebrating mm-hmm. Nebraska's 150th birthday. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I, um, I have... Uh, a really cool birthday because I get to share it with my state every year. Yeah, good, good, good. Yeah. Excellent. Um, you know, I, I was really interested in talking with you, um, in part because some of the issues you're pushing right now, um, which have a have a nice confluence with, with sort of what the White House is interested in. Uh, the one, the, you know, the first one I'm talking about is is your bill that would uh, encourage employers to, to voluntary, voluntarily offer paid leave. Um, 
the fact that you, you know, are pushing this right now, I mean, just first talk to me. You can give me a, a quick synopsis of this effort and, and talk a little bit about your approach versus some of these other approaches out there. Why this? Why voluntary? Why tax credits? Mm-hmm. I'm just really excited about this bill, and it's something that I've worked on for four years. And my co-sponsor is Senator Angus King, who is, uh, of course, an independent from Maine. And he and I uh, both see an opportunity now mm-hmm. with the new administration coming in and and really Ivanka Trump having mm-hmm. a platform where she's talking about a lot of these issues. Mm-hmm. So, in fact, um, I just saw uh, Senator King a couple days ago, and he says, we really need to push this now. We really need to push mm-hmm. it. And I said, yes, we do. And it is, uh, it's a good bill. It's, uh, I like to say it is something we can get past. Mm-hmm. And that's what Angus and I are focused on. This is something we can get past. It, um, it provides flexibility for mm-hmm. families. And when I speak with women and when we see uh, polls that are out there, women value mm-hmm. uh, flexibility to be able mm-hmm. to um, take off an hour or two to take a sick child to a doctor or to be able to take care of an elderly payment. And when we talk about paid family leave in our bill, we're really uh, focusing on smaller businesses, which Mm -hmm. are also family businesses. And in many cases, those are businesses that have hourly workers who Mm -hmm. um, who have been left out. And these are, these are folks who just need uh, to take off an hour or two or longer in some instances, and this bill would allow that. It does provide a 25% tax credit, and it's going to um, incentivize these family businesses uh, to offer a needed, a needed mm-hmm. service to their employees. Talk, talk to me about your, I think I've read that you've had, I think, three meetings with Ivanka um, one back in September, at least two since since uh, President Trump. We've had a Trump. couple meetings. Yeah, couple so meetings, maybe yeah. more than three. I can see from your no, face. No, no, no. Just, I, I think just two. Meetings. Just two. What is she looking for from you? What is the message you're hearing from her? I mean, she has a different bill. She has a slightly mm-hmm. different approach. Have you heard whether um, you know this is this this could be a compromise she could support? But let's step back. Just talk to me about what you know what those interactions have been like, uh, and what she's looking for. You know, she's, um, she's very committed. She's very mm-hmm. committed to families, as I am. Mm-hmm. She's, um, she's committed to uh, women who are looking for flexibility, who are looking for help, who are looking for um, an acknowledgement of what we deal with in our lives. And what we deal with is a lot of juggling. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of um, trying to take care of kids, take care of parents, take care of our families, take care of our job. And to be able to make that happen, uh, sometimes, sometimes the understanding of the problem is the first step. Mm-hmm. Uh, in our conversations, I, I say to her, this is a bipartisan bill. This bill has support. It's, um, it's something I believe, and Senator King believes, we can get done. And while it may not um, go as far as others would like, uh, those bills aren't going to pass right now. So what is your strategy moving forward? I think you probably took note at the president's speech um, in Congress. It was notable that folks, uh, the Republicans in the House, the Freedom Caucus, when the president brought up the idea of paid family leave, they noticeably did not stand up. So you have a problem or a challenge. Let's I was going to say, say no, 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 no. I'm, I'm a very positive person. I don't. I don't I have a my problem. Yeah. yeah, I changed my language. I can I see it on your I face. I don't have a problem on this. But I have great opportunities mm-hmm. on this. I do. I have great opportunities on this with a good partner in Angus King. So what experiences in your life sort of informed this push that you've been doing this for about four years? What is it from you've heard from your constituents or just you personally, mother of three boys? I assume that's part of it, or, or what is it? What is the, 
why this issue over any others? I mean, I know you're pushing other issues, of course. Oh, I was going to say, let me talk to you about yeah, well, infrastructure <laughs> yeah, no, and roads and national uh, yeah. defense. Yes. Those are those are my really mm-hmm. big issues. I I uh, love to focus but, but on as well. But unless I see you, you've been out front. You've interviewed with Cosmo. You've made yeah. this a, an initiative. Uh, you know, early in this Congress, you're obviously meeting with Ivanka. So obviously, you're putting some yeah. capital on this. And, and so where's I, that I coming think we from? Need, I think we need to see action. Yeah. I am tired of important issues that make a difference in people's lives be nothing but political football Mm -hmm. here in Washington. You know, I'm just starting my fifth year. I'm still in my first term. And um, I'm not good at sound bites. Mm -hmm. I don't think people like sound bites. I think they want results. And to keep demonizing each other over this issue or that issue or or, um, you know, always having a, a microphone in your face saying, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? I would rather produce results. And I think if you look at my record here, if you look at my record in the Nebraska unicameral mm-hmm. where I served uh, before I was in the Senate, I, I want solutions. Mm-hmm. I want solutions. I want results. I want to be able to um, make a difference, a positive difference in people's lives. And if we continue to try to one-up each other and always, uh, I always say demonize or, or poke at the other mm-hmm. side, we're not going to get anything done here. And, Do that, have- and that means we aren't helping people. Uh, it, it, there's a lot of people who are not optimistic about that kind of action at this point in time. I've been in D.C. for 10 years uh, covered the prior president, Obama, covered him from the Hill. It's a difficult environment around here. Like, what, what keeps you optimistic in any way that, that things can get done? Well, I'm from Nebraska, yes, first right. of all. Yeah. You know, we, uh, yeah. we're an optimistic people. Yeah. We, yeah. Uh, we look at opportunities mm-hmm. and, uh, and what we can do with, with what's before us to, as I said, make a difference, make changes, uh, better a situation, find solutions. Um, I'm, I'm fortunate I get to uh, chair a subcommittee on the Commerce Committee, mm-hmm. which is the Surface Transportation Committee, and my ranking member is Cory Booker. I always laugh and say, now, Cory Booker and I, we are not going to agree on hardly anything. Mm-hmm. Hardly anything. I am a cattle rancher. He is a vegan. You know, <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is not going to happen, folks. But you know what? It happens. Mm-hmm. We have worked together on pipeline bills, the Safe Pipes Act that we uh, were able to get passed last year because we understand um, that there are issues out there where we can come together. Mm -hmm. So that's a bill. We work on uh, different um, bills dealing with, uh, say, the Merchant Marine Academy and sexual assault there or just um, uh, reauthorization of bills. And so there's... If you can get a, a former mayor of Newark who's a vegan to work with a conservative woman rancher from Nebraska, um, yeah, there's a lot of <laughs> hope out there. There's some, there's some uh, green shoots, as they would say. <laughs> um, I just want to go quickly to your background. I was pretty interested in, like you said, you're a cattle rancher. Uh, grew up in Nebraska, small town of what, about 2,800? I grew up in Lincoln. Oh, I'm I grew sorry. up in Lincoln, yeah. But you I, moved I, to this small right. town, right? I met, um, I met my husband okay. at the university, and I fell in love with the rancher, and so uh, And been dropped out, out no? Uh, yes, I, I did, and then went back to school. Yes. Went back to school and got my degree. But, uh, yeah, we, uh, we have a cattle ranch south of a community of about 3,000. It's 30 miles south, and uh, live in the... Middle of nowhere, the most beautiful uh, area in this world. And you rose up through politics. I think I read that you have known since junior high that you wanted to be into politics. What, what was it that you wanted since junior high to go into politics? How, how do you know that yeah, you know, when you're, what, 30, 13 years old? Yeah, you know, I, um, I grew up watching uh, 15 minutes of Walter Cronkite, black mm-hmm. and white TV, every night on the news. Grew up uh, during the Vietnam War where we'd um, uh, see the body counts every night. Uh, went through uh, turbulent times of uh, civil rights demonstrations and, uh, and, then, and then Vietnam War demonstrations. So I've, I've always been interested in public policy. My parents took three newspapers, which I read mm-hmm. every day. Yep. So um, yeah, just kind of a policy nerd. Mm-hmm. And, uh, 
and I knew I wanted to be involved in that. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, life t gives you twists and turns, mm -hmm. and, um, I, and I always tell young people, take advantage of opportunities that come up. You know, mm -hmm. it may not be what you had planned, but if you work hard, you'll be recognized for good work, and, and, so, and opportunities will present themselves. Did you, I guess the biggest obstacles in your political rise, like what would you have, what were the biggest challenge, tension points that you had? I mean, you started from the local boards, school boards, committees, the unicameral, you know, to U.S. Senate in a race that a lot of people didn't think you'd win, right? Well, so, I did, of course. Yeah, of course so. you did. You, you have to believe in yourself, but... Um, and that sort of pulls out to a broader question, just, you know, speaking to how so few women sort of still are in Congress, mm -hmm. uh, still only 20 women, 21 women, yeah. I believe, in the Senate. You know, I guess point to or bring me to that, those moments that, you know, that you felt were the biggest challenges as you rose up through politics. Like, what would have kept you from not pushing think, forward had it not been I, sort of... I think, I think with me and... Um, I would say with, with many women uh, who I know and have been in contact with, some of the challenges are those that um, we put on ourselves, mm -hmm. and it's the choices we make. Um, you know, I, I was very fortunate to be able to uh, be on a ranch, be a, be a part of a family business. Uh, we raised three sons there, but... I also made the choice not to get involved earlier in, um, in state politics, for mm. example. I was asked to run for the legislature earlier, but I still had kids at home, and I lived 300 miles from Lincoln. And, of course, my family, my husband's going, oh, yeah, you can do it. And I'm thinking, oh, you have no idea what's involved <laughs> in this. But uh, I made the choice not to run at that time. Mm -hmm. And, and waited choice? until our kids, yeah. you know, were older and waited mm -hmm. until they were all out of high school. Um, and, and then uh, the opportunity presented itself, and, and I ran. So it was a choice that uh, you delayed your ambitions until after? I would say um, at, the, at the point, you don't know if you're delaying them mm -hmm. or if you've said no, if you've shut a door. But it's a... It's a choice you make, and you're, you're responsible for the choices you make. So it, it, it would have probably been a, uh, an easier path to do it at that time uh, professionally to, to do it, but um, my family's important to me, and, um, and I didn't want to miss those years. And so that was a choice I made. And then, of course, the opportunity, I stayed involved and was involved uh, with things at the university, advisory councils, uh, um, commissioner on the state's post-secondary coordinating commission with education, things like that, as well as local school board. And, and um, so I was encouraged to run uh, 12 years What's, what's like the one thing you would have done differently as once you entered into politics? Do you ever look back and think, eh, I wish I wouldn't have done that, or I would, would, would have made a different choice, um, a regret? I mean, it's hard to say that, you know, you're in the U.S. Senate now. That's not such a bad place to end up, but... Um, I, don't, I don't think I have regrets, because mm -hmm. I've, uh, through it all, I've learned good lessons, and, um, so what are the best lessons you've learned then that you've well, taken in? The best lessons I've learned, uh, now some of these are going to sound a little trite, <laughs> but as I tell young women, uh, and you have to remember when I, when I was involved in a lot of these boards, I was the only woman in the room. Mm -hmm. And uh, you learn early on, I'm not the one taking the notes for the meeting, and I'm not the one who's going to pour the coffee, and I'm not the one at the workshop who, when they put the papers on the walls and you're supposed to brainstorm and all this, I'm not going to go up and do mm -hmm. that. And um, Did you find that people would look to you to do that? Yes. And, you, what, yes. What, and what did you do? I just said no. I said I don't need to do that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and why didn't you do that? What did you feel? Because that would have, I think that would have been, um, I love all the guys I work for and look and work with through the years. But um, yeah, I don't need to go get their coffee and stuff. I'm, uh, I was their equal on these boards. And I think sometimes you just have to put a mark down like that in a soft way. And it's, um, 
and it proved to be helpful in developing relationships with um, with a lot of a lot of these folks, older ranchers, and uh, you know we joked about it in later years, and they go, yeah, I remember Deb, you said you were never going to pour me coffee, and I said, oh come on, you know I did I did a couple times, and mm-hmm. I laugh, but um, I mean just things like that that you in the early days where you're slotted into a, a position because you're a woman. Did you find that coming to Washington, you had to exert some of the same barrier uh, lines that you wouldn't cross and give me one of them or two of them? Uh, I, don't, I don't think so much in Washington um, that I've, I've seen things at that, uh, that level that, that happened, you know, maybe um, 40 years mm-hmm. ago at a local level. But here in Washington, um, I would say that I feel I have to work harder than um, than my colleagues. Than your male colleagues? Yes, and my male How colleagues. So? And I think we put that on ourselves as women. And, and why does that explain that to me? Um, I'm a policy person. I'm a serious person. And uh, I hope to always be taken seriously. I want to... Um, I want to show that there are certain areas and in the spectrum of issues that um, I'm an expert on, and I think um, I think you can see that in my women colleagues as well. That that you know this area, say for example, highways and bridges. I I'm an expert when it comes to uh, roads. That's a background I had in the state. It's one that I've carried here. Um, I, I'm an expert when it comes to financing education in the state of Nebraska. Um, just from my work through many years uh, working with our state aid formula, I'm, I'm uh, becoming more of an expert uh, with regards to our national defense and our nuclear deterrent and cybersecurity and things like that. So it's, I think it's important that we do that. So does that mean do you, feel, that. you feel the pressure to go into each of these situations more prepared? Mm-hmm. Probably. I'd say that. I can never have enough information. My staff will tell you that. Mm-hmm. Uh, from, from back in my days in the legislature, my staff will say to you, uh, yeah, we used to give, give her binders of information. And uh, I can never have enough information. Because that makes you feel more confident going into... I mean, I find myself, I have to feel utterly prepared. Otherwise, it's just yeah. like something just doesn't work. Like, mm-hmm. I just... I feel like people can see through me. I think it's just something uh, that I see in women. I mm-hmm. see it in myself. I see it in other women that, um, yeah, we always, um, we always feel the need, maybe not to be prepared, but to show that we yeah, are prepared. Yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. that's the big deal. So we're, we're, we're six weeks into the Trump administration. Um, y- y- your constituents know that you were critical of him back in October after those tapes were revealed. Um, you voted for him. You weren't happy about what happened. You were critical of, of, of that. Uh, describe to me, you know, that moment, I guess, if you can explain that to me. Uh, you took some heat for that, I think, for saying one, not one thing and then saying another, but being more nuanced about it, if I'm to be fair, or generous mm-hmm. almost to your critics. Uh, why did you do that? It had, it had um, I guess you could say it had reached a point that I felt I had to speak out and say something uh, when those tapes came out. And, um, you know, I'd, I had asked ask him to step aside uh, obviously, the president did not step aside. He's president now. And, um, and when he didn't, I fully supported him because uh, I, I agree with him on so many of the issues. I, I knew that he uh, would be better for our country. I could not support Hillary Clinton and uh, her stance on the issues and the direction that uh, she and her party would have taken this country. So that's, um, that was my guiding uh, force in, in those final weeks of the election. But what I heard, and especially heard from younger women, they were, they were pleased that I had said something. They were pleased that I had uh, stepped forward to do that 
and not and not just sat back through it there at the end of the election. And they they told me that when I did that and then and then uh, still um, gave my full support to President Trump, that that reassured them that that they knew that I was um, looking at the individual and and what happened many many years ago that it happened a dozen years ago but but still could take that into consideration and still support where I believed he would take the country in the future so he he is a he's a a, a, a him and his like as his his circle have have put a premium on loyalty have you seen any blowback from having come out like that no, uh, yeah, not yeah. at all. It's a radio, yeah. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> that, that was a head shake of no. Um, no, not at all. the The president has been um, um, very generous to me I, in um, in our conversations. Um, I believe I have great access. Uh, they they know that I uh, was a strong supporter of his and worked hard for him. Um, so I. I find him um, to be great to work with. I was just at the White House a couple days ago for bill signings and for um, um, the executive order on waters of the U.S. to be able to participate in that, and he and I had another good conversation. He he has been, um, uh, as I said, generous with me, good with me. Uh, We have great access with his administration, and so I, uh, I, I look forward to continuing that relationship. Last question: What grade would you give him six weeks into his presidency? I would give him, especially after the State of the Union speech, with, which I thought was fabulous. I would give him an A right now, mm. and I'd give him an A because he's doing what he said he was going to do. He has put forth a good. Uh, cabinet choices. He has put forth a good judge for the Supreme Court. Uh, he's he's um, he's getting a lot done, and I think his his speech, his State of the Union speech, was absolutely fantastic. I loved the way he talked about our 250th anniversary as a country. I loved the way he he wove that into his speech and looked forward um i liked the hopeful feeling i liked the um the comments about unity because i i believe this country has to come together you know the last several years you, know, you can see it's just been torn apart and um i liked that he put that in his speech and made it a central part, that, uh, that idea of hope and unity and working together. Before the speech, what grade would you have given him? Probably a B. Probably a B before the speech for the same reasons. But I just think he, I think he knocked it out of the park on the mm-hmm. speech. And um, as, as you saw in the chamber on uh, our friends on the other side, um, we're pretty stiff, uh, you know, pretty stiff. And the president didn't didn't fall into um, responding to the dislike he was he was seen on the other side. Um, I I give him a very high grade for that because that's difficult when you know you have half the room over there who don't like you, who are making it plain they don't like you, who are making comments through the speech. And he never faltered. He stayed true to a positive message. Thank you very much, Senator. It was great to have you. Thank you. 